Nebraska is urged as a great union-saving measure. Well, I too go for saving the union. Much as I hate slavery, I would consent to the extension of it rather than see the union dissolved, just as I would consent to any great evil to avoid a greater one. But when I go to union saving, I must believe at least that the means I employ has some adaptation to the end. To my mind, Nebraska has no such adaptation. It hath no relish of salvation in it. Hello, my name is Ryan Hamill, and I'm one of the hosts of New Humanists, the podcast of the Ancient Language Institute. I'm here with Jonathan Roberts, my co-host and co-founder of the Ancient Language Institute. We are on a quest to discover what a renewed humanism looks like for the modern world. Today, very excited for a variety of reasons, most importantly of which is that we have a special guest, my friend, Ted Richards, who is a PhD student at Claremont, studying Shakespeare and Lincoln. I will let him introduce himself before I do. Just want to give you a rundown of what we're going to be talking about. We are talking about Lincoln in Peoria. This is a famous speech, a real masterpiece from old Abe about the Kansas-Nebraska Act, about slavery, about saving the Union. It's kind of Lincoln's political comeback speech that you know, in the long run, with a long view, sets him on the path to the presidency. And we're going to be talking about that speech, about Lincoln, and particularly the presence of Shakespeare in Lincoln's thought, in his education, and in this speech itself. So first, Ted, can you uh, introduce yourself? Tell us all your, all your credentials and why people should believe every word that comes out of your mouth. Certainly. I, as, as Ryan mentioned, I'm a, I'm a PhD candidate at Claremont Graduate University. I stu- I'm a political science major, but I'm writing my dissertation on Shakespeare's influence on Lincoln's thought and statesmanship. I have a master's degree from the same institution, uh, and I have been studying political philosophy for about 10 years now, I really started honing in on the question of literature and scripture and less, the word they would use is logocentric sources of wisdom for political science. And that's really where my interests lie, because I think that that's where a lot of truth that most people in the world, that that's where most people in the world derive the truth and the things that they believe is through things like poetry, literature, film. And so that's where I end up with a finding this interest, this very niche interest in Shakespeare as Lincoln read him. That's essentially what I bring to the table. And uh, hopefully that's enough to to recommend me. Yeah, that's that's just some of what you bring to the table. But that's the most relevant piece <laughs> for today, at least. Uh, just a word about, you know, kind of why we're doing this. We have Lincoln, so 19th century American, Shakespeare, Elizabethan English writer, obviously, uh, neither of whom are classical in the sense of from Greco-Roman antiquity. And so it's a bit funny, like Ancient Language Institute, why we're talking about these two modern English uh, writers and figures. Obviously, they're big enough in themselves to merit talking about, but I think there's a close connection between our project of delving into humanism and the tradition of humanism and what humanism 
could look like in a kind of renewed way, because the role of poetry and literature in the refining and development of statesmanship and leadership was arguably the central concern of the Renaissance humanists. And in Lincoln, and I think we've mentioned Lincoln before on this podcast, you get a really great picture of what that could look like. A statesman who's kind of bred on, on the tradition. And of course, his was not the education that an aristocratic Englishman would have. It was a very backwoods American version. So before we get into the Peoria speech, Ted, can you tell us a little bit about Lincoln's education? Yeah, he famously, he said that he'd never had much in the way of education and everything that he's learned, he's picked up. That until he was a lawyer, he was never in an academy or school really in in the collegiate sense, in the more formal sense of the word. And everything that he learned, he had to learn on his own. So there's there's some sparse accounts from people who knew him when he was a young man that he spent a few years in a grammar school. And it was in the very proper sense of that word. It was a school where they teach you to cipher to the rule of seven, I think, was what Lincoln said, and basic grammar. And all of it pointed toward a moral education. They would use these readers. Um, famously, Frederick Douglass used the Columbia Reader. And uh, in this, there's a lot of anti-slavery things, uh, sort of precursors to the to the stronger abolition movement that came later on. And it helped Frederick Douglass cut his teeth. And notably for Shakespeare, there, or excuse me, notably for Lincoln, there were Shakespeare speeches in these readers that he had access to. One of the plays that he later in his life said that he really enjoyed is Henry VIII. It's a very strange Shakespeare play. It's not a popular one today. It was a little more popular in Lincoln's day, but we're led to believe, if you look at the history of it, the reason why that play became a favorite is because he read one of the speeches of it when he was a young man in this reader. And so it was this very formative thing that Shakespeare taught him rhetoric when he was you know, 10 years old. As he got older, he was never in a school ever again. He just taught himself. He was a shop owner. He was a rail splitter. He was a surveyor. He read Euclid so that he could learn to survey by himself. He just would carry it around when he was on the law circuit and read Euclid. And he, by his own confession, nearly mastered Euclid, which uh, was very impressive. And Lincoln was not one to, to, to boast about his education. And so he felt very confident in his reading of that particular work. Now, the conventional explanation of Lincoln's education is that he read Shakespeare in the Bible. It's usually how it's described. And the evidence for this is interesting because it's not as if Lincoln was constantly talking about how oh, I just love reading Shakespeare in the Bible, but he referenced the Bible more than any other book, far and away, uh, which is curious because a lot of people, they question whether he was very pious. It's just something that he did was he was referencing the Bible, although he didn't seem to be a conventional Christian. Uh, Shakespeare, he referenced far less frequently. However, there's this famous letter that he wrote to a Shakespearean actor, James Hackett, while he was in the White House. James Hackett came and visited him, and Lincoln had seen him play as Falstaff in Merry Wives of Windsor and Henry IV Part One. Hackett came and uh, he told Hackett, you know, how grateful he was to him. And Hackett ended up sending him uh, a very 
forgive the pun, hacky book about Shakespeare that he had written. It's like a 150-page defense of the to be or not to be speech in Hamlet, saying why it's the best speech and how it's the highest of all literature and all these things. So Lincoln receives this book, evidently at least some through it, because in his response, he said, I should have noted that I received your book. And I should have said that months ago, once I received it, I'm sorry that I didn't. He's the president. It's during the Civil War, so he's busy. But in the speech, he says some of Shakespeare, many of Shakespeare plays I have read, uh, some of them I have not read, but other plays I have read as often as any unprofessional reader. And among those plays are Richard III, King Lear, Henry VIII, Hamlet, and especially Macbeth. I believe that I think Macbeth is I think that nothing equals Macbeth. It is wonderful. And then he adds this little note, you know, Hackett, he writes this big defensive to me or not to be. And Lincoln says, I don't think to be or not to be is the best speech in the play. I think the best speech in the play is the oh, my offense is rake speech by Claudius. So we have this is a very like it's tantalizing and it's extraordinary. It's a very strange letter. But it points us to the importance of Shakespeare and Lincoln's education. There's other things we know he, we read. There's a list of books. There's a whole document. It's you know, 20 pages long, and it's just a bibliography. And it's things he read and then a grade, the likelihood that he read it based on the source. And so that's, that's what we know about his education was that it was very autodidactic. But what's astounding about that is that he became one of the greatest orators in American history his words we can still study as if they're great texts in themselves. And it's infused with this biblical language. And occasionally, as in the speech we're going to read today, Shakespeare bubbles right to the surface. But beyond that, you can feel the ethos of somebody who has been educated by Shakespeare. There's a line, I believe it's in Lord Charnwood, where he says that Lincoln is someone who learned to think with Euclid and to feel with the Bible. And you can feel that and you can, you can appreciate that in his writing. The eloquence of Shakespeare, including his speech patterns, the way that Lincoln will, he picks up the pentameter uh, rhythm even sometimes. And uh, you can feel Shakespeare coming through in, in everything that he does. But in particular, why, we, why I like the Peoria speech is because you can really look at what he's doing with Shakespeare and see how, much, how serious of a reader he was of Shakespeare and how influential Shakespeare was on his thought. Awesome. Yeah. And so part of the reason we're doing the Peoria speech today of all the great orations of Lincoln is I have here in front of me a PDF of an article called Lincoln and Shakespeare at Peoria by one Ted J. Richards. And so there's a passage from here that I'm later in the podcast I'm going to read from at length because it's really, really good. And it's a, it's a passage that you wrote, Ted, that opens up for me both Hamlet and the Peoria speech, or at least aspects of them. Um, but we'll get to that. We'll get to that. Jonathan, you look like you might want to jump in and say something before I... No, I'm, I'm just speechless. Just, just loving it. <laughs> Need to read more Shakespeare. I have questions, but for, for later on... Well, so last time I kind of made a concerted effort at reading Lincoln at length, which was a couple of years ago, I foundered very quickly on the things I should have learned in AP US history about 
the Missouri Compromise, the Compromise of 1850, the Kansas-Nebraska Act, the Fugitive Slave Act. And this is stuff, these these are all like phrases I knew. And if you'd asked me at the time, like, explain the Missouri Compromise, I would have been like, oh, it was because I knew it at one point, or at least I knew I knew a textbook answer for it. But, you know, over the intervening years, it had kind of fallen out of my brain. So, Ted, will you give us a really quick introduction to, like, set the scene for the Peoria speech? Why is Lincoln making this speech? And situate it kind of both in American history and in the the Lincoln biography. And then we can kind of jump in and not have to like give footnotes to what we're saying as we talk. Yeah, no problem. So Lincoln had retired from politics at this point. It's 1854. The about four years or two years previous to this, he had completed his one term that he did in Congress. He was he was a one term congressman, wasn't reelected, didn't even put his name up for reelection. Uh, helped elect Zachary Taylor as the president while he was in Congress. You know, there were different things that came from that. But he retired and thought that he had ended his political career. He thought that he had ruined his political career because the way that he had acted in Congress, especially in the way he had resisted the war with Mexico, had put him at odds with a lot of people in his own party and especially with the party in power, which was the Democrats at the time. He was a Whig at this time in history. And so he retired. He went home. He was a lawyer and he just ran the circuit and was a was a circuit lawyer where you just travel from the, the court would move around the state so different people could have their cases heard without having to travel hundreds of miles. And so the lawyers would travel instead. And so this is what he was doing when something happened in the Senate that changed his mind. The Missouri Compromise was something that allowed Missouri in as a slave state while establishing a line below which or above which no slave states would be admitted and setting the precedent that all of the territories would not come in as slave states unless the individuals in the territory chose to be a slave state and it was approved by the Congress. So what's happening with uh, in 1854 is that Stephen Douglas uh, of the Lincoln-Douglas debates fame has put forward a bill with a few other people to change this rule, to overturn the Missouri Compromise, and the bill is called the Kansas-Nebraska Act. What this bill says is that Kansas and Nebraska will be enabled to enter the Union as slave states, even though they're north of this compromise line that, that the Missouri Compromise set up, and that If the people in the state, if the people in the territory decide they're going to have a slave constitution, even if there's 100 people, they vote a slave constitution, five years later, they're now a state, that constitution is going to be enshrined and that they're a slave state, even though it was only 100 people and now there's 10,000. Lincoln sees this happening. And what he saw in this was a nefarious effort to extend slavery across the United States. We've obtained all this territory with the Louisiana Purchase, California Territory, the Oregon Territory, the Utah Territory. All this stuff is getting bigger and bigger. This sets a precedent that allows the people who are pro-slavery, as he saw Douglas being, to extend slavery into every corner of the United States. And the logic of it would say that it could go into any state of the Union, including the free states, that eventually those could be overturned by popular vote. What Lincoln puts forward in this speech 
is a claim that allowing people to vote whether slavery should enter or not is wrong because slavery is wrong. And this is a new kind of argument because people so far have just, you know, you have your slave states, you have your free states, and you just don't bother each other. Lincoln is saying it is wrong. Slavery is not good. And I'm not afraid to say it, which there were some people who were saying this. There were abolitionists, of course, at the time. And in claiming this, he's saying, I will do anything I can to prevent slavery from entering where it has never been, because doing so is going to make people slaves who were not slaves before. It's going to make it possible for people to become slaves who were not slaves at the beginning of all this. And it's going to increase the demand for slaves. And so people are going to breed more slaves, which is a common practice of that day. And so Lincoln, when he sees this Kansas-Nebraska Act happening, in his own words, it aroused him as nothing had aroused him before to jump back into politics. It kicked him in the butt and he got back into into gear. So the situation of this speech is he has followed Stephen Douglas, who's a very famous orator, to one of his speeches and said, hey, I've prepared something. I'd like to respond to you. And Douglas, you know, kind of knows who Lincoln is. And he's just like, I, I guess, I guess you can. I don't know what, what we're doing here. So as a matter of history, this is actually the very beginning, the genesis of the Lincoln-Douglas debates, because their debates are over the question of slavery in the territories, slave states versus free states. That's what the Lincoln-Douglas debates are that happened in 1858. It was four years earlier, and it's the beginning of their contention. And so Douglas agrees to let him talk. And Lincoln gets up there. Douglas has been speaking for three hours. Lincoln gets up there and he says, I'm going to speak now. I want you all to go get your dinner, get comfortable make sure your stomach's full and come back. And I promise you that Douglas will speak for an hour after me and will respond. And I only do this because I think that you'll only stick around if I let Douglas skin me. It'd be the only reason that I that I think any of you would stay, but I want you to stay. So I'm willing to submit to this condition. So that's the setup. The Missouri Compromise is the bone of contention between them and this Kansas-Nebraska Act. In Lincoln's opinion, Douglas is claiming that It's instantiating popular sovereignty, allowing the people to decide for themselves. Lincoln says whether or not this is popular sovereignty, as Douglas calls it, it is not right. And Douglas is doing it because he is pro-slavery. Now, that's a historically debatable point. Harry Jaffa, who's the the great Lincoln scholar, essentially says Lincoln's exaggerating on this, that that he's not actually pro-slavery, but this is the effect, according to Lincoln, of Douglas's position. So just to kind of get a little bit into like how how this speech has been received, there's this very common narrative that Lincoln doesn't really care about slavery. He really only cares about the union. And what what do folks do with this speech? If they if they really want to hold that line, how does this speech function in, in their understanding of history? I think that the best thing they can do is ignore it because this is too early for Lincoln to be thinking about these things. But the fact is this speech was a turning point. There's a great book. Uh, Lewis Lehrman has a book called Lincoln at Peoria. And in this book, he essentially argues Lincoln created this argument and it's what he said every time he gave a speech for the next 10 years. It's essentially right. You look at this, there's these famous things that you'll read it and you're like, oh, I remember this where he's talking about you know, she doesn't need to be my wife, but she's but she doesn't need to be a slave either. Yeah, I remember he says that all the time. He says that somebody has a right to the bread that they earn with their own hand all the time. This is the first time he said any of these things. All of those rhetorical phrases and ideas, this is the introduction of them. 
And this is essentially, he is creating the platform that he's going to run on and stand on for the rest of his time. The argument that the Civil War is not about slavery mistakes the of course, there are elements of the Civil War. It, it is about the question of the Union. It's about the question of property rights. It's about the question of states' rights, et cetera, et cetera. But Lincoln hated slavery. This is his own words. He said, I hate it. And if slavery is not bad, then why did... And people, say, people would say to him, slavery has no effect on you. He says, if it had, the effect it has on me is to make me miserable. He did not like slavery from a very young age. He was actually very a very gentle person from a young age. He... Uh, Famously, he saw somebody, a young man, kill a frog, you know, as kids do. He found a frog and he heard it and he killed it. And Lincoln gave a speech to all these kids about why you shouldn't harm animals. Lincoln was a compassionate person in this way. And from the very beginning, he was anti-slavery. Anyone claiming otherwise has to twist themselves in rhetorical knots, and they do. Yeah, so some of these big issues that kind of come to a head in the Civil War almost a decade later are present here in the beginning of the speech. When he's introducing the speech, he says, I wish to make and to keep the distinction between the existing institution of slavery and the extension of it, which is how things stand before 1863, the Emancipation Proclamation, because you have all these border states that are slave states, but stay in the Union. And so clearly, there seems to be some sense that we're not this war isn't about abolishing slavery per se. Clearly, slavery is at issue on some level, but it's really about the extension of it into these territories, which is, of course, the occasion of the speech. And he also has a line uh, that I wanted to pause on just below when he says, he's talking about the territories, and he says, in the beginning when we acquired these territories, we were then living under the Articles of Confederation, which were superseded by the Constitution several years afterwards. Now, that's, on the one hand, just a kind of basic factual statement. Like, yeah, we had the Articles of Confederation, and then the Constitution superseded it. But that seems important to me, at least, because over the course of the speech, he's always positioning himself as the national figure over against the kind of partisan in terms of the position of states, uh, position of Douglas and the people pushing the Kansas-Nebraska Act and, and just the idea of popular sovereignty itself. And of course, in the kind of common narrative you have before the Civil War, like these, like United States, America is a, is a bunch of states. And then the, in the Civil War, it becomes one nation. And Lincoln's kind of the midwife of that. And so you see that popping up in this speech. You know, there's even a great section where he's talking about self-government, but he he makes a point the way he's talking about it, right? This, you know, this is Douglas's argument, popular sovereignty, the sacred right of self-government. Lincoln points out that if you let one state govern itself in this way, you're taking away the self-government of the nation, of the nation to be able to govern such moral evils as slavery. I have here the section that says, again, is not Nebraska while a territory a part of us? Do we as a country not own it? And if we surrender the control of it, do we not surrender the right of self-government? It is part of ourselves. If we say we shall not control it because it is only a part, the same is true of every other part. And when all the other parts are gone, what has become of the whole? What is then left of us? What use of the general government when there is nothing left to govern? 
What better moral right have 31 citizens of Nebraska to say that the 32nd shall not hold slaves than the people of 31 states have to say that slavery shall not go into the 32nd state at all? He's making this argument that self-government, yes, this is important, but the nation also has an identity and the nation must be allowed to govern itself. And so I, I agree totally that he's he picks up on the language that it is the United States, not these United States or the United States. You know, it's that the United States is the name of the, the nation, not a description of the Confederation. So to go back to Jonathan's question, you might kind of the critic of Lincoln might say, okay, okay, sure, he was anti-slavery, but he was still a racist <laughs> because he gets into a discussion of equality. And this seems to me to cut really to the heart of the speech because he brings in Thomas Jefferson, which of course should get our antennae up when we're talking about slavery and equality. He says, my ancient faith teaches me that all men are created equal and that there can be no moral right in connection with one man's making a slave of another. So besides the very interesting phrase, my ancient faith, when quoting the Declaration of Independence, he's here agreeing with Jefferson on human equality. But then he says, a couple paragraphs later, let it not be said, I am contending for the establishment of political and social equality between the whites and blacks. I have already said the contrary. So maybe he's anti-slavery, but he's still a racist because he's using He's using the kind of words of an of a slaveholder to browbeat the South for the sake of kind of northern political interests, but he then immediately disclaims any belief in real equality because you know his his audience would freak out if he's actually calling for for equality between whites and blacks. What do you what do you kind of say to that? How does how does that fit in? I think of the last thing that you said, that his audience would freak out if he said it that way. And I think that that's one of the key points about, about the way that Lincoln approaches this question. He's very careful. He doesn't ever say anything superfluous, and he doesn't ever put himself in a rhetorical situation that's going to damage him or the nation politically. The result is that sometimes he sounds a little bit a little bit squishy, a little bit difficult to pin down. But there's a good passage about this in the speech where his presentation of it I think demonstrates the ambiguity or the uh ambivalence that he demonstrates in the way that he in the way that he presents it. Uh he he's I I've called it in the past I've said that Lincoln uses equivocation as a tool of prudence. And in this equivocation, you'll find that he's not he's not firm on the question of equality as as he seems in that in that section. That section he's drawing on this former statement, right? It's it's a long passage, but I think it's worth reading because there's a lot in it and it explains what we're talking about here. When southern people tell us they are no more responsible for the origin of slavery than we. I acknowledge the fact. When it is said that the institution exists and it is very difficult to get rid of in any satisfactory way, I can appreciate, I can understand and appreciate the saying. 
I surely will not blame them for not doing what I should not know how to do myself. If all the earthly power were given to me, I should not know what to do as to the existing institution. My first impulse would be to free all of the slaves and send them to Liberia, to their own native land. But a moment's reflection would convince me that whatever of high hope, as I think there is, there may be in this, in the long run, its sudden execution is impossible. If they were all landed there in a day, they would all perish in the next 10 days. And there are not surplus shipping and surplus money enough in the world to carry them there in many times 10 days. So here's the key passage. What then? Free them all and keep them among us as underlings? Is it quite certain this is better than their condition? I think I would not hold one in slavery at any rate yet. The point is not clear for me to denounce people upon. What next? Free them and make them politically and socially our equals? My own feelings will not admit of this. And if mine would, we well know that those of the great mass of white people will not. Whether this feeling accords with justice and sound judgment is not the sole question indeed, if indeed it is any part of it. A universal feeling, whether well or ill-founded, cannot be safely disregarded. We cannot then make them equals. It does seem to me that systems of gradual emancipation might be adopted, but for their tardiness in this, I will not undertake to judge our brethren of the South. Now, the key here is he sets it up and he's like, I don't know what to do about slavery either, okay? We can't blame the South, we shouldn't judge them. This is a line that he keeps throughout his career, by the way. Especially the second inaugural is very famous. Famous, He says, judge not lest we be judged on these men that are now going to be readmitted to the Union, even though they were you know, rebels not long ago. Here he's saying, my own feelings will not admit political and social equality. But then he runs a counterfactual that is entirely unnecessary. But even if they did admit of it, those of most white people would not. And whether this is a just feeling or not, that's not what's important right now. The implication being, this is probably not a just feeling that they don't want this equality. What's important is that this is a universal feeling, and you cannot safely disregard a universal feeling. To me, this is the answer. When people say, well, Lincoln was actually a racist, whatever. I mean, he leaves rhetorical ground for you to conclude that because that's what's popular. But he's doing this counterfactual, this squishiness where does he? Do his feelings admit that it would be just for the slaves to be his equal? It sounds like it might. He's not positively clear on this, but he allows that rhetorical ground. He's never dishonest in his rhetoric, but he's always very careful to allow it to sound a certain way while saying honestly what it is that he feels. In, in my experience, you can usually find his true opinion if you look carefully at what he's saying. Yeah, how would you, how would you characterize his general posture towards um, slavery in, in this sense? He's not an abolitionist in the sense that he's like, burn anything, kill anyone, we're, we're, we're getting rid of this. He has some far more... I don't want, I don't know if measured is the right word, but it's kind of it's kind of like almost non-ideological in a sense. It's like you have to you have to consider other things. There are other goods at stake. And how do you kind of characterize that at Lincoln's uh, approach to, to slavery? And you know, Lincoln gives a, another good line in this speech uh, on this topic, the way that he talks about slavery with the founders. And I think that it's a good guiding thing to consider the way he says it. He talks about, for the founders, slavery was not something that they wanted to talk about. The Constitution doesn't mention it by name. It was mentioned in the first draft of the Declaration of Independence, and that was removed. The mention of it, as the original draft had it, was removed because it condemned it and 
the South wouldn't, they were like, no, we're not doing that yet. But Jefferson wanted to put a condemnation of it. So the founders, they, they understood the moral evil of slavery. They weren't naive and they weren't uh, morally obtuse. And Lincoln's comment on this, he says, he, he describes what's in the Constitution about slavery or that points to slavery. And he says, these are the only provisions alluding to slavery. Thus, the thing is hid away in the Constitution, just as an afflicted man hides away a when or a cancer, which he dares not cut at once, lest he bleed to death. With the promise, nevertheless, that the cutting may begin at the end of a given time. This when or cancer line is great because for the founders, what's primary? Founding the nation, government by the people, for the people, of the people, as Lincoln later calls it, and freedom from English tyranny, right? This is what's primary. The question of slavery, they know that it's evil. They know that it's wrong, but they've put it to the side. Lincoln tries to adopt this disposition that slavery is evil, but there are other things to consider. Lincoln is one of the most prudent speakers and writers and thinkers in America. And this prudence is what allows him to say slavery is evil, period. There's a principle he never drops it. He never says anything otherwise. And in fact, he gets very upset when people try and imply he must say otherwise. Like whether you like what I'm saying or not, I'm allowed to say it. And it's true. And so I'm going to keep saying it. However, there are other things to consider. The question of union is primary at a certain point in the Civil War. This is really what he's focused on. The Emancipation Proclamation, he pushes as a war measure later on. There's argument to be made that he's doing it with rhetorical flourish. He claims that God commands him to do it, which is a little strange for somebody who seems as impious as Lincoln. There's there's a lot of very interesting things going into it, but he does not do it. at the. It's not what causes the war. He's not elected, says slaves are free, and then the war starts. The war starts, he tries. To, he enters the war to protect the Union, and slavery he sees as the bone of contention, as I've been calling it, and so he tries to throw it out the window. One more little comment on this thing, this position of the founders. This is a line that I think is often misread. It's actually a hilarious line. So there's this winter cancer line, right? And that they're not going to cut right away, but they'll cut at a given time. Lincoln then evaluates how the founders did. Less than this, our founders could not do. In other words, they could not have done any less. They couldn't have done anything less with regard to slavery. They did the bare minimum. And now more they would not do. Necessity drove them so far and farther they would not go. In other words, it sounds like he's saying like the founders, they did what they could. That is not what he's saying. What he's saying is the founders did only what they had to and nothing more. They left it and now we have to deal with it. However, he still adopts the position that slavery is an evil and we have to find a way to deal with it. And so to your to your question, Jonathan, he takes the position of the unionists who may not like slavery but don't really care and the abolitionists who are who their famous phrase is no union with slaveholders and he finds the synthesis between them right he finds this this golden this aristotelian mean between these that there's the extreme of we're going to ignore slavery and the extreme of if we don't do something about slavery now then god is going to strike us down and he finds a way between he says the abolitionists are right that slavery is evil but the politicians are right that we have to operate a country. And so we have to find a way to operate in that middle zone. And that's what he does. Uh, There's a great phrase in Lord Charnwood that Lincoln attacks this problem with deadly moderation. That's, and that seems to me to be as good a definition of statesmanship as you could find that he's 
kind of looking around at the place he's in that he's been given to lead or that he wants to lead. And he's looking at the, at the problems and looking at the different constituencies um, and finds a way to hold on, on the one hand, to kind of truth and uh, moral truth in particular, while also not letting that moral truth become ruinous to the state because pursued in the manner of an abolitionist would destroy the state. And so then maybe you'd have a prophet, but you wouldn't have a statesman because you would drive the state into the ground. And I think that brings us to Shakespeare, but, and we're like 42 minutes in, we still haven't talked about Shakespeare. But before we do that, I want, I do want to ask one question that arises out of the speech. And that brings us, brings us right to the, the quote you read in the cold open, it hath no relish of salvation in it. Um, but before we do that, okay, let's say let's say Lincoln is kind of an esoteric, racial egalitarian, but he realizes that's not popular. Okay, therefore, the mass of white people, even the ones who would vote for Lincoln, and honestly, probably even a lot of the abolitionists themselves, aren't r- true racial egalitarians. And... So then the question arises, why would these people fight and die for the union? Yeah, the union's cause isn't programmatically abolition. On the other hand, slavery is the bone of contention, and these people are willing to die for it. Lincoln says, I think he gives a few different reasons, but one of them, he says, talking about Nebraska and why to keep slavery out of Nebraska, that the whole nation is interested. So this is a national question. The whole nation is interested that the best use shall be made of these territories. We want them for the homes of free white people. This they cannot be to any considerable extent if slavery shall be planted within them. Slave states are places for poor white people to remove from, not to remove to. So is that the reason, you know, these people of their time who do not believe in racial equality are nevertheless willing to at the end of the day, fight for abolition, because really it's about it's about protecting themselves. Yeah, I think I think that's right. And Lincoln was always very self conscious about the question of base self interest. We might call it to this point. The argument that Lincoln made is that being a poor white man in the South is one of the worst things you can be, because you cannot get paid to work. If you are a peasant in the South, you can't do manual labor. Nobody will pay you for it because they'll just hire a slave. Why would they pay you? They don't have to pay anyone. And so for this argument that you're talking about, this is what he's pointing to is if they can find a future someplace else. And Lincoln, most people, he's he's seen as a progressive darling. And so most people don't know this, but he actually was very in favor of free enterprise and the idea that people could work for themselves and make money for themselves and, and that there should be competition. For him, he looks at slavery and he says, this is an economic disaster. It doesn't allow people to do what they need to do to take care of themselves. And it doesn't allow people to reach their highest level of you know, marginal utility or whatever you want to call it. And this is the argument that he's making is you're not going to do well if you stay in the South. And so we need to make it possible for them to escape and start anew. This is the, this is the American dream of the West. And Believe it or not, Nebraska is the West at this point. This is as far West as you can go while still being right on the edge of the United States, the actual states, not just the territories. 
And so he, this is the dream of the West is you go there, you claim the land, you work it. And if you're good at it, you're going to become wealthy. And this is what anyone can do. It's just you prosper according to your own genius. You get to go take care of yourself and prosper or fail. And Lincoln saying, if we make this a slave state, it's going to be just as bad for them. They, there's there's going to be no place for these kind of people to go. Adventurers who want to have this spirit of westward expansion and manifest destiny. And so that's another part of this argument that does certainly appeal to people who might who might just hear him, you know, and find him distasteful because he's talking about this slave question. To that point, there's a great scene in the movie Lincoln, uh, if you've seen it. At the very beginning, it's just this poor this poor man. He's coming and he's meeting with Lincoln to ask for help with something. And this is pretty common in the early Republic. And Lincoln asked the man, are you in favor of the abolition of slavery? And he says, yes, I am. You said you need, we need you to end the war, right? He says, yes, I'm in favor of it to end the war. And uh, Seward, who's in the room with him says, okay, but do you like, do, do you like the idea of once we abolish slavery, all of these, all of these slaves are going to be living with you? guy shakes his head and he uses the n-word to describe them and says i don't want them around me and so this is somebody who supports abolition because lincoln has told him it's necessary for the war but not for any other reason and so lincoln's very keyed into these types of arguments to bring people along with him to see that his his uh position is sensible for more reasons than just the abolition of slavery for its moral evils there seems to also be this argument I don't remember how explicit he makes it, but this notion that the slavery question does need to be dealt with because it's fundamentally at odds with the Declaration of Independence and with the idea of self-government. It's like it all hinges on the question, like, are these, are we talking about human beings? And every time that he brings that up as a question, you can just hear the answer. It's like, yeah, obviously they're human beings and we all kind of know, we all know this. If we don't deal with the question in a particular way, then the very kind of American project or my ancient faith, it's all for naught. So, Ted, why did you read what you read at the beginning for us when Lincoln says that, okay, maybe maybe the Kansas-Nebraska Act, just let the people decide in the territories if they want slavery, then... We don't have to argue about slavery. We can just let those people decide, and then that'll save the union because everyone can just wash their hands of the question, step back, and let the Nebraskans deal with it. And he says, it hath no relish of salvation in it. And this is, I mean, this is the argument that Lincoln, or excuse me, that Douglas and his supporters have, is that if we take it off the table as a matter of debate and just send it back to the states, then we're freeing ourselves from having to deal with this sticky issue that people don't want to think about. And we allow the states to just take care of themselves. And not only that, he makes an argument that it's a sacred right. This is what the states are allowed to do. It is their ability. Lincoln, he hears this and he says, I, I think that saying that this is going to save the union, as you, as you note, Ryan, hath no relish of salvation in it. Now, the reason I read that quote is because that is a almost direct, he changes it just barely quote from hamlet in the in the folger shakespeare edition it's uh act three scene three line 97 it had it has no relish um it has no relish of salvation in it is what it says in the original 
the context of that line. So for me, when I read this, I saw that that was a Hamlet quote, didn't know what to make of it. And I, there's four total quotes from Shakespeare or near quotes from Shakespeare in this play. And I found them all and I just wasn't sure what to make of them. And so I just started looking and digging. I ran back to the Hamlet quote and fascinatingly, as we noted at the top of the show, uh, there's this Hackett letter where Lincoln establishes some of his favorite plays. And he says that he thinks that the Oh My Offenses rank speech from Hamlet is better than to be or not to be. Well, it hath no relish of salvation in it. That line comes right after the Oh My Offenses rank speech. And so we know that Lincoln, he's reading this speech. He's thinking about his speech that he's going to give. And he comes to the end of it and he sees it. And he says, that is how I would describe the Kansas-Nebraska Act. He puts it in. The context of this, why this is important is because Lincoln's making a sub-argument or a literary argument. Now, some people, they hear this and they think, well, I mean, this is a speech. Nobody's going to catch this. It's true. But Lincoln actually, the very next day, went to the newspaper office with his copy of the speech and he handed it to me. He said, I've edited this. I don't want you to use the secondhand report. I want you to use my speech. And so the punctuation, the quotation marks, all of this is Lincoln's original. And so this choice to include this Hamlet quote, he wants the reader to think about it. And he wants you to think what was going on with Hamlet at this time. Well, Claudius, the Oh My Offenses rank speech is right after the play within a play. This this thing that your high school teacher probably obsessed with. Oh, it's a play within a play. It happens in like every Shakespeare play. It's not that big of a deal. <laughs> but there's this play within a play that happens. And he uses it to catch his mother and his uncle trying to get a reaction from them, right? To show that they're guilty. And Claudius gives him exactly what he wants. Claudius halfway through the play just stands up and runs out of the room. Uh, is very upset. And Hamlet sort of turns to his mom. He's like, oh, he seemed mad. What was going on with him? Uh, and he follows him. And before Hamlet catches up with Claudius, we find Claudius alone in his closet. He's praying or thinking about praying. And he's saying, I cannot repent. It's not possible for me to repent because I'm still weighed down by the burden of my sin because I haven't given up all the things that I sinned for. I committed this sin so that I could receive all of these goods. I'm the king. I have my my wife. And now, now I'm looking back and wishing that I could be forgiven, wishing that this guilt could be absolved, but it can't be if I don't give up these goods that I've gotten. And at the end of it, he says, you know what? I'm going to try and pray anyway. All may be well. Kneels down, he prays, and Hamlet shows up. He just misses this. He just misses him saying that my prayer is useless. And he sees him and Hamlet is about to kill him. This is this famous scene. He pulls out the knife. He's going to kill him. And he stops himself and he says, as a good believing Christian, I believe that because he's praying right now, if I were to kill him, he probably would go to heaven. He's doing something righteous. And so if I kill him now, I'm going to send him to heaven. I'm going to, he gets everything he wants and then he gets to go to heaven. And that's not fair. The only thing that Hamlet will settle for is damning his soul eternally, which is, uh, brutal. Just think of the psychology behind this, that he is, it's not enough to kill him. I have to destroy him. I have to have his soul burning in fire for all eternity. And so he goes to kill him and he stops. He says, no, I'm not going to kill him while he's praying. I'm going to kill him when he's drunk in his incestuous bed. He's with his sister-in-law having sex, right? Or doing some other act that has no relish of salvation in it. Hamlet exits. 
Claudius stands up and he says, my words rise up, my thoughts stay below. Words without thoughts never to heaven go. Once again, Hamlet misses the boat. If he had heard Claudius say that, he probably would have slit his throat. Claudius didn't pray or he didn't successfully pray. He tried, his words went up, but he couldn't. He wasn't sincere. Lincoln picks up on this and he says, this is what the union is about. This is what's happening with the Kansas-Nebraska Act. If we can't figure out that the real issue is the moral issue, then we're never going to be able to get beyond this. This Kansas-Nebraska Act is a, fa- it's a false prayer to a false, uh, there's this phrase that uh, Douglas uses that it's a sacred right. The right is sacred, it's divine, it's holy from God to hold slaves. And Lincoln says this has no relish of salvation in it. This is not divine. This is not holy. It's the opposite. If we bow down to this divine, this false sacred right that Douglas puts forward, then we are as bad as Claudius with his prayer without, with his words without thoughts that he's praying. And Hamlet could justly slay us. It brings to mind a quote from Thomas Jefferson, a famous one, where he says, we have the wolf by the ears. This is him talking about slavery. It's holding a wolf by its ears. It's a very visceral image. We can neither hold him nor safely let him go. Justice is in one scale and self-preservation is in the other. We have the choice. Do we get to keep our slaves and be unjust but maintain the union in Jefferson's eyes? Or do we let them go and possibly destroy the union and get destroyed by our slaves as well? But um, this is sort of the, the rhetorical setting that Lincoln sets this up in. And this is why he's drawing on Shakespeare. There's this deep pool. He puts this one line and all of a sudden his, his point dives into a well. And if you follow it, you can learn a lot about the way Lincoln sees the situation. Well, that's really interesting because that, the line in particular, there's two things that come to mind for me. One is, okay, Claudius saying this prayer hath no relish of salvation in it. Like I can't, in Cliff's Notes English, you know, I can't save my, I can't have my soul saved just by praying. This is like cheap grace and it's, the grace isn't even going to come. Like I have, I'd have to divest myself of the material goods I got from killing my brother if I'm going to sincerely repent. And I can't even bring myself to want that. So forget it. But then at the same time, so Claudius is kind of sitting in judgment over his own soul in that way. Like, oh, I'm going to decide for God that I can't be forgiven. So I'm not even going to try. But then Hamlet also wants to decide for God. He's like, I know he's going to be saved if I kill him right now. So I better not. I want to make sure he goes to hell. Uh, So I'll kill him later. So Hamlet, too, like Claudius, is kind of sitting in judgment on his own soul and arrogating himself to himself the role of God. And so it's an interesting double action. On the one hand, like Hamlet's just obviously the protagonist and Claudius is obviously the antagonist. One's the good guy, the other's the bad guy. And yet they both seem to be bad guys on some level if they're going to judge in the way Jesus commanded people not to, and which is a command that Lincoln repeats, not in this speech, but in the second inaugural, right? One interesting thing or parallel with this Claudius speech is that it also seems to reflect Lincoln's understanding of 
America's self-understanding. Like Claudius knows that he's guilty, that he's done all these bad things. He's intellectually aware, like I've, I've sinned, this is bad. But he just does not have it in him to repent. And there are certain elements in this speech that kind of the Peoria speech that kind of seem to indicate that Lincoln thinks that, no, we all know this is bad. We all know that we're dealing with human beings. We just don't have that kind of willingness to actually repent of what we're doing. That's exactly right. The theological elements of Lincoln's point, I think, is underappreciated. And it shows that, I mean, he's thinking very carefully about Shakespeare here. And that's the part that that I find so fascinating. And I think that when you consider it in that light, right? He says, if, if uh, slaves are hogs, if, if black people are just like hogs, then everything we're saying is perfectly consistent. But you know they're not hogs. You and I both know that. And all, none of us treat them like they are. You can't talk to hogs. And you don't have these you know, special permissions in the way that you think about their working conditions. Well, and the whole and the whole country was maybe not unanimously, but close to unanimously in support of things like banning the slave trade. And it's like no one's no one's advocating banning the hog trade. Yeah, exactly. And c- correct. And well, and the comparison is the, a comparison that Douglas makes is cranberry laws in I think it's Maryland. He says Lincoln's like, of course, I don't want to mess with the cranberry laws in Maryland, but we're not talking about cranberries. We're talking about people. And you all know it that they're people. And so to your point, Jonathan, it does bring really strongly to the fore that we didn't have the political will, just like Claudius didn't have the moral will to get past this, to 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 just think about to to say what it was, to be honest about what was going on. And I think that, that that's another thing, as you point out, that the Hamlet quote brings out in stark in a very stark way. Makes me think of the um, the young rich man who is like, I followed all the commandments. Well, sell all your stuff, give it to the poor, follow me. It's like he knows this is the right thing to do, but just the cost is too much for him. It's that same kind of <laughs> kind of image of like you know in your brain, but your heart is just not in it. Yeah, absolutely, and and that's and and I think that that's why. Lincoln liked Claudius so much was that there was this very, very human element to him. Lincoln, first of all, really understood ambition. He was a very, very ambitious man and struggled with that throughout his career. But he found a way to put his ambition under control of his prudence, that reason was was the, the overriding feature. Whereas Claudius shows that he let ambition take control to the point that when he looked back and wanted to fix it, he couldn't, and he didn't have the will to. And so Lincoln, I think, really understands Claudius on that psychological level. And making the nation into Claudius, I think, is just a very brilliant image. It's one that's, uh, once, once you see it, it's hard to unsee it. This idea that the nation is behaving uh, in this morally reprehensible way and knows it. So there's about... 10 things I want to bring up, but we don't have time for it. So I want to skip ahead to probably, to me, one of the best, most fascinating pieces from the, the quotes from the speech that will lead me to your paper. So I'm going to read two quotes 
that are pretty close to each other in the Peoria speech and in which Lincoln quotes Shakespeare. I'll have you talk about them really briefly, and then we'll I'll jump to your piece. So first, Lincoln says, in our greedy chase to make profit of the Negro, let us beware, lest we cancel and tear to pieces even the white man's charter of freedom. So the threat of black slavery is ultimately white slavery. And this Lincoln hammers on in the Lincoln-Douglas debates is like, this is really about whether everyone could become a slave. There's so much to say. So cancel and tear to pieces. Hold that one in your mind. The other one, you can as easily argue the color out of the Negro's skin. Like the bloody hand, you may wash it and wash it. The red witness of guilt still sticks and stares horribly at you. So these are both Shakespeare quotes, cancel and tear to pieces and the bloody hand. I I thought about picking a fight with you on the podcast about saying, bloody hand, have you considered that maybe instead of Shakespeare, he's actually referring to the red bloody hand of Ulster and Irish heraldry? Mm. I don't think that that is uh, <laughs> likely or relevant. I mean, you maybe someone, yeah, <laughs> someone could make the case. I'd love to read it. Um, but yeah, give me give me a good title, and I'll go and search that stupid document and see if uh, see if Lincoln read it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so okay, give a give us the one on one on on those quotes and how they're working for Lincoln. Cancel and t- they're both from Macbeth, uh, in in my estimation. The second one could also be from Hamlet, as I argue in the piece. I think that they're both a pretty good fit, honestly. But it's evident that he's referring to Macbeth, and I'll I'll say something about that in a second. But first. And everybody knows Lady Macbeth washing her hands. I mean, that's just like, if you remember one thing from Macbeth, it's got to be that. Right. It's the image and there's like the out, out damned spot. This is what he's trying to say, right? Like no matter how much you wash it, it still sticks and stares horribly at you, right? The first piece is a little bit unusual in my opinion. I didn't register it as a Shakespeare quote the first time I heard it. I had to go and dig a little to find it. The phrase cancel and tear to pieces why Why is that in quotation marks? Why did he even feel the need to do that? And the answer is because he wants you to think about Shakespeare. He wants you to dive in. If he hadn't put quotation marks around it, it's possible that it wouldn't have been found, that nobody would have noticed that this was a quote from Shakespeare. Right, because we have Lincoln's manuscript. The, the newspaper is from Lincoln's manuscript. This isn't somebody reporting. Exactly. And so the reporter wouldn't have noticed. There's not a chance, I don't think. And so Lincoln, he he makes this a quote. And when you go and look at the context, this is Macbeth talking to Lady Macbeth about they're about to go kill. He's about to go have Fleance killed by murders. He doesn't tell her this, but he says, she says, what are you about to do? He says, don't, you know, he says, be innocent of it until I crown, until I crown the deed with success. And he says, he, he says a prayer to the night. This is a common thing in the play where they're praying to demons and, and pagan gods and whatever. And he prays to the night that it will take its bloody and invisible hand and will cancel and tear to pieces that great bond which holds him pale. Uh, The great bond is a difficult phrase, but I think the only thing it can be is the prophecy. The prophecy that Banquo's family are going to be kings and that Macbeth won't have a line of kings after him. And so what is he going to do? He's going to try and tear the prophecy so that he can free himself from it. He's already king. He doesn't need the prophecy anymore, right? I'm just going to go destroy this prophecy. I already took fate into my own hands. I made myself king. Yes. And so I'm going to go kill Fleance. Okay? 
because you can because you can see that prophecy as like colloquially we say like doing a deal with the devil like Macbeth kind of did a deal with the devil where he said he heard the prophecy that you'll be king and then he said okay I'm gonna do the most heinous thing I could do which is kill my own king in order to make that prophecy come true and then he's like but hold on that prophecy also says that Banquo's line will become king so I better undo that deal I did with the devil and so if I can interrupt you this is where I want to read your own words. This is what kind of blew my mind from your article. You say, just as the senators who supported the Kansas-Nebraska Act sought, as Lincoln sought, to perpetually deny a small part of society the natural freedom all enjoy in common, so too Macbeth wished to overturn a troubling part of the prophecy that secured his reign as king. In both cases, they vainly sought to substantially alter an inconvenient aspect of a metaphysically consistent concept while retaining desirable aspects for themselves. Such alteration undermines conceptual consistency. If a prophecy fails in one aspect, it proves the categorical unreliability of the whole prophecy. If a natural right can successfully be denied in perpetuity to a small number, it demonstrates the possibility of the same denial to a larger number. Douglas and his coalition wished to destroy freedom itself, just as Macbeth sought to debunk the entire prophecy. Neither Macbeth nor the senators seemed to realize it. That, to me, just, it opens up, this is a great example of where this, these two little quotations open up this whole, whole argument Lincoln's making and open up Shakespeare, too, to say, like, yeah, if, if you're, if you want, you can't, do a deal with the devil and then take it back when the cost comes. And that's what, that's what Douglas wants to do. Yeah. And, and I think that that to me, it's the only explanation for the inclusion of this line is that he wants you to think about the, the question of these, the metaphysically consistent concepts is you have these gods or goddesses of fate, the, the weird sisters and they come and everything they say comes true but Macbeth wants to say no to part of it. And so the diff- the similarity would be to the Declaration of Independence, which also is supposed to be coming from a god who tells us that everybody has these natural rights. Douglas and his coalition, exactly. Douglas and his coalition want to say no, some of them do not have these natural rights. And Lincoln is pointing out to them, Macbeth would not be king if he had killed Fleance. And we would not have natural rights if you can deny them to black people in perpetuity. It's the same concept that if nature dictates something, you cannot say yes, but only in some cases, it's not your choice. And that's what the Kansas Nebraska senators, that's what they want. They, they want to be uh, choosing beggars is the, is the phrase I've heard it called that like, this is something that's being gifted to them. And yet they're going to say, yes, but also we're not going to let you give it to everyone. You have to have the monarchists laughing in the background now because we've sort of made the argument that the American Revolution was a deal with the devil. Uh, and so we had to kill King George, so to speak, uh, in order and assert our natural rights in order to have our country. And then the question is, uh, whose metaphysically consistent concept is, uh, is true, the divine right of kings or the natural rights of the Declaration? Because they seem in conflict. Lincoln talks about that too, the divine right of kings being in conflict with the Declaration of Independence in the same speech. There's a lot in there. Right. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's always a step ahead of us. 
So we're headed to to an end. Man, I really wanted to get into Alexander Pope because Lincoln has this quote in there where he says, fools rush in. He says, I'm going to rush into this, into this argument. Fools rush in where angels fear to tread. And so I saw that in quotation marks. And I'm like, where's that from? Ecclesiastes? And I searched it. I'm like, no, that's an essay in criticism by Alexander Pope, which I pulled out a bunch from. Because if Lincoln's being careful with his Shakespeare quotes, I'm sure he's being careful with his Pope quotes. It's a poem well worth reading. It's long. But yeah, you have to read the poem. Pope coined that phrase in that poem. He also coined to err is human, to forgive divine. You'll find that in an essay in criticism. There's also some quotes about statesmanship that I think would have resonated very well with Lincoln, who I'm sure read this if he's quoting it. Anyways, so much more to say. Yeah, well, my final questions. So, uh, of course, nothing beats reading primary sources. So people should definitely be reading Lincoln, be reading Shakespeare. We strongly endorse that. What are some other resources, whether books, lectures, articles, that our listeners might find as useful guides towards kind of thinking about Lincoln, Lincoln's rhetoric, Lincoln's use of, you know, of uh, literary sources. What are some, some useful guides for, for those sorts of things? So on the literary sources, that one's one of the tougher ones. It's actually why I'm doing my dissertation because I think it's underserved, but the classic works on Abraham Lincoln are both by Harry Jaffa. He's considered the greatest Lincoln scholar. There's Crisis of the House Divided and A New Birth of Freedom. They were written 40 years apart. And you can see a great change in Jaffa's thinking about Lincoln in them. Both of them are filled with wisdom, a lot of very good things to learn from them. If you want more of just the close textual criticism and and looking at what's beneath the surface and, and what Lincoln's up to, there's a great book called Lincoln's Speeches Reconsidered by John Channing Briggs. He's actually on my committee for my dissertation. Uh, very good book. And he has, he finds a lot of references to Lincoln that I just would never have noticed. He's, he's a very brilliant reader. And Diana Schaub recently put out a book that does this, just close reading of Lincoln's speeches. Hers is more of a grammatical analysis, I would say overall, grammatical and historical, where she picks up on the fact that Lincoln read a grammar book and it had a strong effect on the way he wrote. And she just sort of demonstrates that. But those are, I think three good sources, those three that I've, that I've read quite a lot in. Fantastic. Uh, okay, Ted, give us the final moral of statesmanship or humanities or something. What's, um, people should go read this stuff. Uh, I don't know. Do you, have a, do you have a closing benediction, a good word, so to speak, for our audience? I think the, the thing that I would emphasize about what we've been discussing is that this is brilliant stuff that we're reading. What Lincoln said, the way he said it, why he said it, the arguments he's making are incredible. And he made them with the barest materials. He had read Shakespeare, he had read the Bible, and he came to understand them on a very deep level. As a result of that, we see what we see here. And it's not to say that you have to be Lincoln to be Lincoln, but a good education is to be had by simply picking up the materials and reading them for yourself. And I think that no one demonstrates that better than Abraham Lincoln. This backwoods considered a hit in his accent in the way that he behaved. He's kind of ugly and tall and gangly, 
And despite all of that, he's able just to study and learn and become Abraham Lincoln. And that, that I think would be my, my final message about this is statesmen and politicians and anyone can benefit from this kind of study that Lincoln did. Thanks, Ted. Well, that was awesome. Thanks so much. I was really looking forward to this and it was very good, very exciting stuff. We'll have lots of links in the show notes so you can go find uh, the things we're talking about and that Ted's recommending. Yeah, thanks so much for joining us. And until next time, this is New Humanist. Thanks for joining us.